Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast. It's been a while since the last episode. That's because, due to this unfortunate corona business, we're quarantined in our apartment, and it's not large enough to offer a quiet spot far enough from our three-year-old to let you record a podcast in peace. But today, my better half has taken the toddler on an extended tour of the neighborhood, so I'm able to do some recording. You probably don't remember, but last time, we took a little break from the actual history and focused on a bit of Viking legend. More specifically, a very particular Viking legend, the one about Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons. Various real-life Viking leaders were claimed to be descendants of Ragnar Lothbrok, including Ivar, King of Dublin, who has been identified as the fictional Ivar the Boneless. Today, we return to the more conventional descriptions of the past favored by historians, and we'll have a look at the Viking invasion of England, or what was to become England. In fact, you could argue that England became England because of this invasion. Some people have done exactly that. But before the English would come to enjoy the benefits of a sense of unity that only a proper Viking invasion will give you, they had to suffer through that very invasion. In the year 865, Vikings showed up on English shores in previously unseen numbers. Within five years, they had conquered most of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and established their own rule on the island. Many of the invaders settled for good and even brought their families with them from Scandinavia. The dismayed Anglo-Saxons watched in disbelief at the success of these barbaric Northmen, and as usual, they filtered these cataclysmic events through their pious understanding of the world. Episode 6 The Great Heathen Army Just like Ireland that we talked about in earlier episodes, the rest of the British Isles were also culturally, linguistically and politically divided when the Vikings came knocking. In the parts that today are Wales and Scotland lived Celts and Picts, who spoke their distinct languages and who ran independent chieftaincies or petty kingdoms. The Anglo-Saxons, living roughly in what's today England, did speak a common Germanic language, what we today called Old English. But they were politically divided. There were four Anglo-Saxon kingdoms at the time of the first Viking attacks, Northumbria, East Anglia, Wessex and Mercia. The latter had traditionally been the strongest among them, but the Vikings soon proved that the might of the Mercian kingdom was well past its prime. These kingdoms were hierarchical societies with a king at the top, ruling with the aid of his eldermen, a sort of nobility who filled administrative and or military functions. Beneath them, descending on the social ladder step by step, you had landowners, agricultural workers, and at the very bottom, slaves. Like in the rest of early medieval Europe, the vast majority of the 1.5 million or so Anglo-Saxons lived in small agricultural settlements. There were only a few, rather small towns scattered around the island, mostly royal or ecclesiastical administrative centres, or trading towns, predominantly with access to the sea. Even though they were politically divided, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms had their religion, Christianity, in common. And their Christian perspective on things was to colour their understanding of what was about to hit them. As we've already discussed in previous episodes, even though what officially inaugurated the Viking Age was an attack on a target in England, that is Lindisfarne, the Vikings then went on to focus most of their initial raiding efforts elsewhere in the British Isles, most notably in Ireland. In 835, the first major Viking raid in southern England took place, directed against the Isle of Sheppey, close to the mouth of the River Thames. The following years, 
Viking raids continued on a relatively small scale across coastal England. The winter of 840-841 offered a nasty surprise in the form of some off-season raiding and plundering. Some Vikings had waited on an island off Ireland and struck during the winter when the Anglo-Saxons thought that they'd be safe from attacks. The year 850 was the first that Vikings stayed the winter in England itself, also this time in the southeastern corner of the country. In the following years, it happened every now and then that raiding parties spent the winter somewhere in or close to the Thames estuary. In 865, instead of some limited raiding here and there, the Vikings changed their tactics and sent a considerable force to invade England. This force was named the Great Heathen Army in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and the name stuck. The campaign of invasion and conquest against the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms lasted for 14 years. Considering how much damage they managed to cause, it has long been assumed and claimed that the Great Heathen Army was enormous force. The name itself, the Great Heathen Army, kind of implies it. Unless, of course, the Anglo-Saxon chronicler was referring to the quality of the army and not quantity, and that seems unlikely, to say the least. In the 20th century, there was a trend to downplay the size of the force, where some scholars estimated it to have included no more than 1,000 soldiers. Other scholars give higher estimates, comparing it to the large Scandinavian forces that operated in Francia roughly at the same time. I don't want to get bogged down in a debate on this particular point, but suffice it to say that the debate rages on, with scholars measuring the capacity of Viking longships and search for archaeological traces of military encampments in England. Whatever its size, the army was more than likely composed of elements from various places in southern and western Scandinavia, as well as Ireland and the con continent, where Vikings had been raiding and conquering for a while already. Various Scandinavian leaders, probably primarily from what's today Denmark, had come together to provide one combined force, under a leadership that allegedly included Halfdan Ragnarsson and Ivar the Boneless, sons of the legendary, not to say mythical, Viking leader Ragnar Lothbrok that we discussed last time. The Norse sagas claim that the invasion of England by the Great Heathen Army was aimed at avenging the death of Ragnar Lothbrok and that his sons initiated the whole thing. Needless to say, modern-day historians are skeptical. At the end of the day, it's highly unlikely that the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok were the ones who invaded England, but once again, since this version of events was commonly taken to be true, it's a part of Scandinavian history. A more likely reason for the invasion was natural progression. Viking raiders had learned, not least from their experience in Francia, that we'll talk about in a future episode, that joining up in a large force could yield much higher returns than isolated raids. Furthermore, the Scandinavians had probably realized that much like Ireland, Anglo-Saxon Britain could be a great place to settle in, rather than simply a place to raid. In other words, there is no reason to assume that they wouldn't apply the same tactics to the British Isles, no need to invent an avenger story where enraged Viking sons set out to avenge the legendary Seeking Father, except, of course, that such a story can be highly entertaining. Anyway, the Great Heathen Army first descended upon East Anglia, where they demanded and received tribute in exchange for a temporary peace. As part of the deal, the East Anglians were forced to supply the invaders with horses. From there, the Vikings moved north in the year 866 and attacked Northumbria, which was in the midst of a civil war between various claimants for the Northumbrian throne. 
The Vikings exploited the civil war to capture York, one of the two major cities in Anglo-Saxon England, in November 866. York, or Jorvik as the Vikings called the town, soon became an important centre in Scandinavian Britain. Following the loss of York, the warring factions of the Northumbrian Civil War formed an uneasy alliance against the Vikings. They launched counterattacks, but the Vikings were victorious and killed both leaders of the two sides of the Civil War. One of them happened to be Ella, the king who had thrown Ragnar Lothbrok in the snake pit, and according to legend, he was blood-eagled as punishment for Ragnar's death. The Vikings then placed an Anglo-Saxon puppet king, Egbert I, on the throne of Northumbria. The next target was the Kingdom of Mercia, where in 867 they captured Nottingham. In his desperation, King Burgred of Mercia requested help from the King of Wessex to help fight the Vikings. King Ethelred of Wessex and his brother, Alfred, led their army against the invaders at Nottingham, but the Vikings weren't stupid enough to meet the West Saxon forces in a pitched battle and instead refused to leave their fortifications. King Burgred then negotiated a peace with the Viking leaders, or in other words, paid them off, letting the Scandinavians keep Nottingham in exchange for leaving the rest of Mercia alone. The Vikings returned to Northumbria in the fall of 868 and overwintered in Jorvik, staying there for the most of 869. But in late 869, the great heathen army supposedly led by none other than Ivar the Boneless again advanced on East Anglia and decided to winter there, as well as to demand tribute of the East Anglian king Edmund. Edmund didn't like it one bit, as he thought that those horses he'd given the Vikings last time should have been enough for him to be left alone, so he decided to attack the Vikings instead of giving them uh, what they wanted. This did not end well for Edmund. We don't have many details, but we know for sure that the Vikings killed him. He may have fallen in battle, but later traditions, a hundred years later in fact, claim that he met his death as a martyr. According to this later and rather pious tradition, the evil heathen Vikings captured the king and demanded that he renounce his Christian faith. When Edmund refused, the Vikings beat him, shot him with arrows and then beheaded him all at the orders of Ragnar Lothbrok's son, Ivar the Boneless, and his brother Ubba. According to one legend, Edmund's head was then thrown into the forest, but was found safe and sound by a search party because the head called out to them, Here! 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 But in Latin. The head was found between the paws of a wolf, who was protecting it from other animals, but was happy to let the search party take care of it. This is obviously nonsense, and the martyr story seems to be cut and paste work of Edmund's hagiographers who borrowed freely from the depictions of the deaths of other marchers. But, as a marcher, Edmund served an important purpose as a unifying symbol of Anglo-Saxon Christian resistance against the foreign and heathen invaders. So, it's not particularly surprising that all these religious overtones are laid on a little thick. A cult developed surrounding Edmund, and he was even regarded as the patron saint of England for a while. His shrine was a popular destination for pilgrims, and the abbey where it was located became rich thanks to Edmund's reputation and ability to draw both the masses and the wealthy donors. Unfortunately, the shrine doesn't exist anymore, since it was destroyed during the dissolution of the monasteries in the 16th century. But that's a part of English history, well beyond the scope of this podcast. By this time, the Vikings had triumphed over three of the four Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, Northumbria, Mercia and East Anglia, 
and now the Great Heathen Army turned its attention to Wessex. As I mentioned previously, at the time Wessex was, Wessex was ruled by Ethelred, who had ascended to the throne in the year 865, when his elder brother had died and passed on the crown. At his accession to the throne, Ethelred was only 18 years old, and his younger brother Alfred was only 16. These two children were put in charge of the kingdom. I bet there was more than one West Saxon nobleman who nervously hoped that the inexperienced duo of teenage boys wouldn't be put to any serious challenges until they could grow in years and maturity and gather some experience. And then the great heathen army showed up. The Vikings marched from East Anglia to Reading, where they arrived on the last days of December. Reading was situated between the Thames and Kennet rivers, and they set about building a ditch and rampart on the southern side between those two rivers. Three days after their arrival, they set out on a large foraging party, which was defeated by an army of local levies at a glorified skirmish called the Battle of Englefield. No doubt encouraged by their initial success, after another few days, on the 4th of January 871, Ethelred and Alfred brought around the main West Saxon army and attacked the Vikings. The West Saxons fought their way to Reading, slaughtering all the Scandinavians they came across. But when they reached the town gates, the Vikings burst out and defeated the West Saxons with a successful counterattack. According to a later source, Ethelred and Alfred only escaped due to their better knowledge of the local terrain, which allowed them to shake off their pursuers by fording the river Ludden. Their surviving forces regrouped at Windsor, and four days later, around January 8th, the armies clashed again at a place called Ashdown, the exact location of which is lost to posterity. The Vikings were the first to arrive at the battleground and deployed along the top of a ridge, giving them the advantage. They divided their forces into two contingents, one under their kings, Bagsag and Halfton, and the other under their earls. When the West Saxons heard this from their scouts, they decided to copy the formation, with Ethelred facing the kings and Alfred the earls. King Ethelred then retired to his tent to hear mass, while Alfred led his forces to the battlefield. Even though the battle began more or less straight away, Ethelred would not cut short his devotions, and Alfred risked being outflanked and overwhelmed by the whole Viking army. He decided to attack, and led his men in a charge up the hill. After a hard-fought battle, finally the West Saxons were victorious. The Vikings suffered heavy losses, including several of their leaders. The West Saxons followed the Viking flight until nightfall, cutting them down. The bit about the king insisting on finishing his prayers and ignoring the battle is a nice touch, but it may in fact be nonsense, because we find this little tidbit of information in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and Asser's sycophantic biography over Alfred, after he'd succeeded his brother as king, so don't be too hard on poor Ethelwood. It might even have been his sudden and unexpected appearance on the field of battle when battle had already been joined that threw the Vikings and secured the West Saxon victory. Who knows? That might even have been his plan all along. But we'll never know, because he didn't pay anyone to write a book glorifying his deeds. However, victory proved short-lived. It was soon followed by two defeats in quick succession, first at Basing two weeks after the triumph at Ashdown, and then, after two months of relative quiet, at Martin. This battle took place on the 22nd of March, 871. As if that wasn't bad enough, King Ethelred himself died three months later, on the 23rd of April, 871. That meant that Alfred was now King of Wessex, at the age of 22. 
Growing up, Alfred probably didn't think that he'd ever become king. He had three elder brothers, so the likelihood of all of them dying without producing suitable heirs must have seemed far-fetched. But still, it happened. Interestingly enough, King Ethelred actually had two sons who would have had a better claim to the throne than Alfred, but considering the fact that they were little more than children, and the country was in the middle of fighting off the great heathen army, there seems to have been little or no opposition to Alfred stepping into his dead brother's shoes. Not that people had such confidence in him, including himself apparently. When the crown fell in his lap after the death of his brother Ethelred, Alfred didn't relish the thought of accepting the job. It probably didn't help that Alfred wasn't a natural warrior. True, he'd already fought in several battles, and statues from later centuries often portray him as a mighty warrior king, but more contemporary sources point out that he was better known for his intellectual gifts and his, than his physical strength. And as if that wasn't enough, the Vikings struck again and defeated Alfred's army while the new king was preoccupied with arranging for his brother's funeral. Alfred rushed to join his troops, but that didn't help much, and the Vikings won another victory at Wilton in May 871. At this point, Alfred realized that he wouldn't be able to fight off the Vikings, and he agreed to a peace deal with them. We don't know exactly what the terms were of this agreement, but it should shock absolutely no one to learn that King Alfred paid the Vikings to leave Wessex alone. In the late summer of 871, the Scandinavian forces did withdraw from Wessex, and for the next five years they left Alfred's kingdom alone, instead pillaging other parts of Britain. They renewed their attacks in Mercia, and that once mighty kingdom collapsed under the Viking onslaught. The Vikings placed a puppet king on its throne, just as they'd done in Northumbria. They also captured London in the process. During the war in Mercia, Ivar the Boneless died and was succeeded by Guthrum the Old, who joined the Great Heathen Army recently. The Vikings then split up into two groups. Halfdan led one group north to Northumbria. He then focused on raiding further north in Scotland, fighting the Picts and the Britons. In 876, the Northumbrian monarch gave up his lands to Halfdan's men, no doubt after some hands-on convincing by the Vikings. Halfdan divided the Northumbrian lands he had conquered among his men, who settled it, and after that, Halfdan and his army aren't mentioned anymore in the Anglo-Saxon sources. It would seem, therefore, that they retired from raiding and were content with farming their newly acquired lands. But the second group wasn't put off raiding and conquering so easily. This part of the great heathen army was led by Guthrum and a couple of other chieftains whose names I won't bother you with. This group established a base at Cambridge for the winter of 874-875, and uh, in 875 the Vikings started to raid West Saxon coastal settlements, bringing home the message that they could invade from the sea anywhere at any time. In 876, Guthrum decided that it was high time to turn his attention back to Wessex, the only Anglo-Saxon kingdom that still resisted Scandinavian dominance. He invaded Wessex and occupied the town of Wareham, on the south coast. King Alfred rallied his army and tried to take back the town by storm, but failed. In fact, there was little King Alfred can do about uh, the Scandinavian threat at this time, except paying the invaders off. So he did. Again. Alfred negotiated a new peace agreement with the Vikings, and we do know a little more about this one than the 871 deal. The two sides exchanged hostages and swore oaths to uphold the agreement. The pagan Vikings swore their oaths on what the Anglo-Saxon chronicler describes as 
a holy ring that was dedicated to Thor. Such rings show up here and there in the Old Norse sagas too, and the Viking Age Scandinavians seems to have taken them very seriously. Not seriously enough to keep the oaths they swore though, and when they had uh, the chance they killed their hostages and pushed even deeper into Wessex, all the way to Exeter. Alfred immediately rallied his forces and went to eject these oath-breaking Vikings from his kingdom, but he didn't know that another Scandinavian force, supposedly under the leadership of Uber Ragnarsson, brother of Ivar the Boneless, had crossed the Irish Sea and spent the winter in South Wales. Now they were about to make landfall on the northern coast of Wessex, threatening Alfred's back. Complete disaster was avoided, however, when an unexpected storm off the coast of Dorset damaged the approaching Viking fleet, sinking and scattering the ships. When Guthrum heard about this, he abandoned his position and decided to withdraw north to the border into Mercia. Alfred was happy to end the fighting and let the Vikings leave, as long as they promised to keep out of Wessex. The Vikings once again promised to leave Wessex alone, and once again Alfred believed that they would be true to their words. So, in late 877, he sent his army home and retired to the royal stronghold at Chippenham to celebrate Christmas. But yet again, King Alfred had made a serious mistake trusting the Vikings. In January 878, on 12th night no less, the Vikings struck despite having promised King Alfred not to. The Scandinavians carried out a surprise attack against Chippenham, where Alfred was spending Christmas. The surprise element of the attack was very successful, because the Scandinavians managed to kill most of the king's men. Alfred himself and a small retinue did manage to flee for safety in the marches of Somerset, though. But they weren't out of danger quite yet. Uber Ragnarsson had finally gotten his act together and landed a force of maybe as much as 1,000 warriors, threatening to cut off Alfred's retreat. Luckily for Alfred, though, the force halted in order to capture a small, and in retrospect rather insignificant, fortress held by a West Saxon elderman known to posterity as Oda. The Vikings set up a siege of the fortress, expecting Oda and his men to surrender rather quickly due to the lack of water inside the walls. And it's true that the fortress was ill-prepared for a drawn-out siege, but Oda had other options than just surrendering. Instead, he led a surprise attack on the Vikings while they were sleeping and defeated them. Ober Ragnarsson is supposed to have died in the battle, and the Vikings who weren't slaughtered with him fled towards Scandinavian-held territory north of the border. Interestingly enough, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle glosses over this battle, even though it was an important event. Had the Vikings won, they might have caught King Alfred, and, and that would have spelt the end of independent Wessex and paved the way for a completely Scandinavian-controlled Britain. But, unfortunately, the battle wasn't led by Alfred himself, so instead of giving credit to Oda, who saved the day, the sycophantic Alfred-idolizing Chronicle pushes it into the margins of history. Even though the Chronicle doesn't make much of the battle itself, it does go on a bit about the fact that the Anglo-Saxons captured the Raven Banner at this battle. The Anglo-Saxons saw the Raven Banner as an artifact of great significance, probably magic powers. We talked about this last time, so if you've forgotten already, you can go back and listen to the episode about Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons. Despite Otto's triumph, this was Alfred's and Anglo-Saxon Britain's rock bottom. The Scandinavians controlled almost all of what would one day become England, only Wessex was still unbeaten and its king had just barely escaped the Viking onslaught and was now hiding in a swamp. But despite the bleak situation, King Alfred didn't give up. 
From his hiding place in the marshes, he organized his resistance against the Viking invaders. It was here that one of the most, if not the most, famous episodes of all of Alfred's reign took place. That is, allegedly took place. According to tradition, King Alfred first took shelter in the home of a poor peasant woman who didn't recognize him. That in itself seems believable enough. I mean, there were no newspapers, TV or other sources of images, except coins to spread the image of the king. And if she was a poor peasant woman living in a swamp, she might not have been unnecessarily burdened by an abundance of coins. When she left the house in some errand, she gave Alfred one simple task. Make sure that the bread baking in the oven doesn't burn. Simple enough. But Alfred was so preoccupied with the thoughts about how to save his kingdom from the great heathen army that he completely forgot about the bread, which, predictably enough, burned. When the poor peasant woman returned, she was furious at Alfred for having ruined what no doubt represented a big chunk of her caloric intake for the day, and she proceeded to give him a proper telling off until the king's real identity was revealed to her. Then she begged her sovereign for forgiveness, which he readily gave her, a beautiful little episode that unfortunately traces its origins to the 12th century, that is some 300 years after the fact. In other words, it's almost definitely completely made up for propaganda purposes, showing King Alfred as a concerned and clement king. Whatever happened in the swamp, Alfred did survive the winter. In the first week of May, he called the men of his kingdom to gather at Egbert's stone. Men from the surrounding counties, Somerset, Wiltshire and Hampshire, answered the call. Most of those who did show up weren't professional soldiers. They were local farmers who were poorly trained and equipped with whatever weapons and protection they brought with them. But it was better than nothing. After three days, Alfred's new army moved out and two days later they arrived at Eddington. There they met the Scandinavians under the command of Guthrum, who came down from Chippenham, King Alfred's old stronghold. We don't know exactly when the two armies joined battle, but it was sometime in the first half of May 878. What we do know for sure, however, is that this battle changed the course of Scandinavian Britain. The battle was intense, but in the end, the larger West Saxon forces broke the line of the battle-hardened Scandinavian veterans. The Vikings retreated hastily to the relative safety of the fortress at Chippenham, the West Saxons pursued them, and every Viking that didn't make it inside the fortress before the gates were slammed shut were cut down by Alfred's troops. The West Saxons established sieged and waited. They didn't have to wait long. The fortress hadn't been prepared for a siege, and already after two weeks the hungry Scandinavians, holed up inside, sued for peace. Beyond the regular hostages and oaths that they would leave Wessex alone, the Viking leader Guthrum sweetened the deal by promising to undergo baptism and become a Christian. The Scandinavians were thoroughly beaten this time, and the continued independence of Wessex, as well as Alfred's crown, were secured. The defeat at Eddington, in combination with the fleet lost off the northern coast of Wessex and the defeat against Ada, led Guthrum to realize that he needed to cut his losses and retreat across the border into his own domains. Three weeks after the battle, Guthrum, true to his word this time, was baptized. He took the new Christian name Athelstan and King Alfred became his godfather. Guthrum left Wessex and settled down in East Anglia, where he then ruled as king until his death in 890. The men of his army were given lands in Northumbria, East Anglia and probably also in Mercia. This could be done because Guthrum and Alfred divided the once mighty kingdom of Mercia between them. Alfred's Wessex gobbled up the western parts, 
whereas Guthrum took control of the parts of Mercia that bordered on East Anglia, where he ruled. Throughout his reign, Guthrum mostly kept the peace with Wessex, and the Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian kingdoms lived side by side in a sort of uncomfortable coexistence without any major conflicts. Despite the occasional spot of violence, the Scandinavians would never again seriously threaten Wessex. The defeat of Guthrum at the Battle of Eddington, paired with Alfred's reform to the West Saxon military, meant that the Viking threat was contained. In fact, even though the agreement with Guthrum at least de facto recognized a Scandinavian political entity north of the border of Wessex, the system of military reforms under Alfred and his successors meant that later West Saxon kings would be able to recapture land further north that the Scandinavians now ruled. But for the time being, the Scandinavians controlled large parts of the middle bits of Britain. The fertile land tempted many, probably tens of thousands, of Scandinavians to emigrate from Scandinavia and settle there. These settlers weren't just soldiers, but also civilians, women and children. These Scandinavians lived by their own laws that they brought with them from their homes, and because of this, and the Anglo-Saxon propensity to consider all Scandinavian Danes, the area of Britain controlled by the Scandinavians came to be known as the Dane Law, the area under Danish law. Next time, whenever that'll be, we'll talk more about the Dane Law and what life was like in Scandinavian-ruled Britain at the height of the Viking Age. But before I go today, I would like to address two questions that I've received on the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. They come from Andreas in Oslo. In the second episode, Here Come the Vikings, I mentioned the theory that the word Vikings originates from the people who lived in the area around the Oslo Fjord. I rejected this theory, rather flippantly in Andreas's mind, noticing that the body of water in question is called a fjord, not a vik. Andreas points out that the region surrounding the fjord was historically known as vik, so that could have been the basis for the word Vikings, and not necessarily the bay itself. And Andreas is 100% correct that the southeastern corner of Norway, as well as some bits uh, that are today parts of western Sweden, were known as Vik, Vikin or Vika already during the Viking and Middle Ages. Still, it doesn't change the fact that there were hundreds of other bays called Vik all over Scandinavia, and there are no indications that this particular inlet would have given the name to Vikings as a phenomenon. Actually, if Viking would refer to the people of this region, then logic would suggest that also the women and children living there would have been referred to as Vikings, and that's not really the case, at least not in any sources I've ever heard of. So I remained unconvinced. But thank you, Andreas, for submitting the first ever listener question. I will definitely revisit the topic if new facts in the case come to light. He also wants to know why I only talk of Scandinavians when I talk about the attacks on the British Isles, whereas other sources he's familiar with routinely use Norwegian and most often Danish Vikings. What's up with that? Well, it's true that traditional sources like to divide the invaders of the British Isles into Norwegians and Danes, and there's no doubt that, for instance, the islands north of Scotland were settled predominantly by Vikings from what's today Norway, and much of the pillaging that we've talked about today was carried out by Vikings from modern-day Denmark. But those Vikings themselves probably didn't have much of a sense of being either Norwegians or Danes, as we understand those concepts today. The notion of a unified Norwegian or Danish national identity in the 8th or 9th centuries is wholly anachronistic. The Vikings who settled the Hebrides or chased King Alfred through the West Saxon swamps probably wouldn't have considered themselves Norwegian or Danish. 
If anything, they would have identified with a much smaller geographical area, or most likely a clan. The unification of the Scandinavian kingdoms came much later, and even after the political unification, you could argue that it took even longer for the national identity to, to emerge. That's why, when discussing this period in history, I prefer to talk about Scandinavians. I hope it's a loose enough geographical term that no one confuses it with a political entity or a point of self-identification for the Vikings themselves. If you have questions, you can also contact me via the show's Facebook page, facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast, or email me at michaelschenkman at outlook.com, and that's spelled M-I-K-A-E-L-S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N at outlook.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Schenkman, that's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. And that's it for today. Due to the ongoing pandemic, I don't really know when I'll be able to publish another episode, but I do hope it won't be too long. Until then, stay healthy and socially distanced from one another. 